Hello everyone, my name's Tina Dare and I want to welcome you to the Surge Network's Faith, Work, and Rest podcast, where we explore what it means to glorify God and love our neighbor through our daily work and rest. I really loved math in school. There was something about algebra and solving for x and understanding the patterns of numbers and how they work together that was really gratifying to me. And I've always thought that my love for math and my love for theology were similar. Um, That there is this pattern in our study of theology as we read scripture and seek to know God and ourselves rightly, that we see these patterns in our world and in the story that help reveal something true about us and about who God is. But in math, just as in theology, the patterns are just the beginning. It gets really good when we allow those patterns to carry us to the edge of mystery. Sethian talks about how, for him, math is not about the Pythagorean theorem so much as it is about exploring the unsolved mysteries of mathematics. Some will never be solved in his lifetime, and others are the very focus of what mathematicians are pressing onward towards. This conversation um, is for all of us because it is such a poignant reminder that we live in a world that is so incredibly dynamic and complex and beautiful and mysterious And whether it's in our individual fields or simply in our pursuit of walking with the Lord, the patterns that we know in life are always just the beginning. So I hope that this conversation will spur us on towards the edge of mystery to meditate on the incredible beauty of God put on display in his universe and the reality that there are so many mysteries that are unsolved And that we can be among those that explore and sit and enjoy the pursuit of that mystery. I'm here today with Sethian Devadas. And Sethian is this wonderful unicorn of a thinker, writer, um, creator, but he also happens to be a Uh, math professor at the University of San Diego. Um, I'm so excited for this conversation today. Um, Can, before we get into the the beautiful meat of, you know, the Pythagorean theorem and all the fun stuff uh, of math, we're not going to talk about that, just a spoiler (laughs) alert. So don't turn off this podcast episode yet. We're not, that's not not, going to be the content of this podcast. Um, But can you just get us started with a, a short bio of yourself? Yeah, thanks, Tina. It's a joy to be here and uh, just to get to know you a little bit. The, um, I guess the short story would be is I was born and raised in India. I grew up there as a kid uh, and I came to the States in the 80s and my parents were both college professors. So I was trained as a kid in the academic world. My mom was a botanist and a biologist. She loved plants. She has all these amazing drawings of her work. And my dad is a mathematician. So he's a math professor mm-hmm. there. And in India, it's really hard to find institutions that have PhDs. Imagine just a handful of schools in America, like Stanford, MIT, Princeton, 
and Berkeley and Yale. And that's it. Those are the only PhD programs. So, of course, very few people would get PhDs compared to Ohio State, right, Florida and Texas Tech and all that stuff. So they actually had their masters, their college professors, but they wanted to get their PhD. So they came to the States and they lived in George Washington and Georgetown. They went to those schools and we lived in D.C. Mm -hmm. and Arlington, Virginia. Um, and so we eventually decided to stay here for long and weirder reasons, but everyone back uh, is back home in India, like all my uncles and aunts and cousins. So we, wow. my parents in some sense, I would say, sacrificed my sister and I to the culture of America for the sake of their greater family. Mm -hmm. um, and so, my, yeah, my sister and I grew up here and we both ended up getting PhDs because it's the exact same reason that your family had a conversation about you quitting fourth grade which is you didn't have that conversation. Like nobody has that <laughs> conversation, right? Like you're in fourth grade, there's a bully there. You're like, mom, I'm thinking about dropping out. You're like, that's fantastic, Dina. Thanks for sharing. Get out, right? Like go back to school again and you keep doing this thing. Um, so that conversation usually doesn't happen about elementary school. I mean, clearly if you look in America's history, we've kind of moved the bar as to where education matters, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if you just did elementary, it'd be awesome, or just did junior high or high school. And now college is almost demanded, right? In, in the world that we live in today in the West. Um, so in my, I grew up as a kid where you just get off the PhD train. I mean, the train keeps going and it stops at the PhD. And then once you get it, then, I mean, then you can do whatever you want. If I told my parents that I want to work at, you know, I want to be a manager at Hardee's or McDonald's one day, or I, I want to work as a mechanic, I, they would kind of find that weird just because we just know academic life. Like they didn't know too much about the business world of it, but they wouldn't be like morally against it. They'd be like, listen, you got a PhD. It's in your pocket. So if you ever or don't, do if you, you ever, yeah, do what you want, right? Like if you don't like being a mechanic, at least you could pull this out and say, hey, maybe I can play this card down the line. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to play that card and get that card actually in your 40s. You know, if you're already working as a mechanic and at 41 or 38, you say, you know what, I think I want to get a PhD now. It, you know, education's rigged against the old. It's set up for the young. And so at, before you have kids, before you have a mortgage and stuff, it's an easier set to do. So that was their wisdom instilled in me. And the option given to me was I can get my PhD in whatever I wanted. Right? They didn't care. Like there was no, you know, there's no like a push towards STEM or being a doctor, lawyer, and any of that. Just get a PhD in some academic discipline. Um, and having said that, I, as a kid, loved Legos. Now, in India, there were no Legos. I mean, it's just a, it's a product from a different country, and it's manufactured using plastic, so it's very expensive to import it. Mm. I had a cousin that I met once who had, I think, a few Legos, and I just, it looked like a thing that existed in heaven that somehow <laughs> landed on, you're like, what is that? And then I had to leave, and I was like, oh, what? I just, <laughs> You know, like I was just like kind of like crying. And then later in America, I was, we had no money. They're both grad students, you know, taking care of my sister and I. So um, I remember I'd walk by the shelf and they'd have like this, you know, auto chassis expert building set with gears and pistons. And it was 60 bucks or you know, 40 bucks. Unimaginable, right, at that time. Just couldn't fathom that thing. But years later, I got my own little Lego set, just plain blocks. And I just wanted to say that, you know, if we talk about issues of work, what really drives me, and I looked at it later on, is math does not drive me. It actually, mm -hmm. it's cool, and I like it because I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it. But who I am as a person, I'm driven by how I behaved as a kid. So when I was 10 years old, I would make these Lego sets, like just random things I'd make, you know, just none of those like special toys now that look like space shuttles. It'll just be like blocks, and you have to make a space shuttle out of it. So just make something, and then I would sell it to no one. Like I'd just be in the room talking to a wall, trying to sell imaginary friends this car I made, you know, like 
four wheel drive, you know, and just like whatever, <laughs> right? And and I realized that's what drives me is the fact that I love to create, and then、mm. I love to talk about what I've created. That's the driving force, and you could almost plug and play anything there you want. And it turned out that. I wanted to be an engineer because that's what I guess you do to play with Legos. That's what I was thinking in my head. Yeah. So I kind of did engineering, mathy things in undergrad, and I, for to for me to go to engineering school, it would take me two more years. But for、mm. me to go to math grad school, I could go right then, you know, without those two years extra. So I was thinking, oh gosh, like if I just need to get off the train, then that's a、yeah. too long, you know, like that's like two extra stops for that one. So I'll just do this math thing and check check the box. So that's how I ended up in the math world.、Um, wow. And in fact. When you ask me a question about、um, just my family, like、I'm, when I first met my wife, you know, this girl that I met in grad school, she and I grew up in the same hometown, right outside Chicago.、Um, she, you know, we grew up in Naperville, it's right next to Wheaton. And she said, "Hey, what are you doing?" I was like, "I'm a PhD grad student in math." She's like, "I hate math," and I said, <laughs> "So do I." And so we're like, then we kind of like, you know, started going out and like we got married. That was then- your. That was、yeah. the line that started it all. It did, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. It's because in undergrad, you know, you take math as a subject in like a whole set of classes you take, like in a liberal arts education. You kind of have a broad education. I love to learn all these different things. Again, nothing made me fall in love with any particular thing, right? I liked all these different things. But in grad school, Tina, all you do is math. Right, like literally every subject you do is math. You hang out with kids at a pub, and they're just doing math. And so when I met her, I hated math. It's like disgusting. I thought it was a great, like a quarter of my life was math would be awesome, but not a hundred percent. Yeah. And so she hated it for a very different reason. I hated it for this hundred percent thing. So we kind of like are like sweet.、Um, Someone and, outside、yeah. of this world that I'm like trapped in right now. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. And then the. Yeah, exactly correct. And then the the click was when I actually started stopped reading books on math and started doing my own research.、Mm. Oh my gosh! Then my wife felt absolutely betrayed because now I was in love with it. Right? It's like this total <laughs> bait and switch relationship.、Um, and so that again goes back to this echoing of who I was as a kid. Is like if I can make my own toys. Gosh, I loved it. But if somebody says, "Oh, here's an instruction manual. Like, here's a book,、mm-hmm. and here's some papers. Like, this is how other people have done it." Well, you can learn something from it, and of course, there's some cool techniques that you could pick up. But it's not the joy of your own creation. And so, to me, that still drives me. Okay, so are you telling me that you love math because you can be creative with math? Because that is the opposite, I think, of what most of us think of when we think of math is as being creative and making things. Yeah, I think. Absolutely, I think you know what I, I, when you talk about this notion of knowledge and what you can know, at least from the academic setting. You know, there's this idea of what the new heaven and the new earth look like,、mm-hmm. and to me, this you know, this new place. I'm just gonna call it Jerusalem because it's the mixture of heaven and earth. My littlest、mm-hmm. one, my number four, her name is Jerusalem, exactly for this reason.、Mm-hmm. But for me, that place it has a couple of things. You could say, well, there you get to kind of like God can fully see you, and you get to taste the Lord, and you get to kind of be in His presence. But you know what? All the kind of things that gave you a rush on Earth will be gone, and I just don't buy that. So part、mm-hmm. of the rush is like eating ice cream, and I know in this new embodied world we're going to be in, where Jesus walked through a wall and said, "Do you want any fish?" Right in Luke, clearly the new resurrected body is going to be embodied in a physical thing. But at the、yeah. same time, some of the things that you and I get a rush in is about learning stuff, right? Like it's like,、mm. oh my gosh, I didn't know that worked. Or you could put that together and do this. Wait, if that's the case, and we can either playing with Legos to little things to designing a home to you know doing your hairstyle in a certain way to picking out the right clothes. I mean, a thousand things we as designers and creators do. 
Well, gosh, that thing does not immediately then get 100% saturated. You then mm. get to try new ice cream flavors you've never had before. You get to try new clothing combinations you've never done before. If you're a designer of clothes, you really now get to play. Like the joy of being a designer without the brokenness of the fall mm -hmm. comes to be. And so yeah. if you think about any subject, the rush of doing and thinking about any subject is like archeological wonders. And Indiana Jones is a great example of, you know, physically being there in a place where you get to discover things in the past and literally turn back time. Oh my gosh, who has the power to turn back time? And Indiana Jones does, right? Mm -hmm. And like kind of see that wonder. So. In math, it's exactly the same game. Why would it all of a sudden be the case that in that particular discipline of the Lord, that things don't work that way? Of course, it's the same rush. Math mm -hmm. is still looking for patterns and structure in things. And of course, there are patterns and structures in numbers, and you get prime numbers and divisibility and even and odd. And, you know, as a kid, and there's patterns and structures and shape. And so you were talking about the Pythagorean theorem, which is like, you know, A squared plus B squared, like triangles. You were just talking about triangles, with which is pretty. I mean, yeah. it's old school, 4,000 years old, whatever. <laughs> But then there's patterns and structures and chance. Like, what's the chance something can happen? What's the probability, mm. right? Statistics. Then and there's patterns and structures and change. Like, oh my gosh, if I can measure how fast that cloud is moving or how it's transforming, then you get calculus. So those mm. are all things that are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And that's me talking about Beethoven as the representation of music. Well, well, that's cool, but man, music has progressed. I mean, we have Beyonce now, right? We have like these amazing, cool things happening. Yeah. Like Adele is, her DNA is classical roots, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she was trained as this classicist, but then she's doing amazing things with her voice that is at the state of the art, that's at the cutting edge. So most of math that people know is 400 years old and no wonder they don't like it. I mean, it's, it's okay, I, I see its usefulness, but then we moved on. So that yeah. joy of being at the edge of knowledge that's what gives me the rush, right? And to be able to be able to play the game and to actually contribute your idiotic quarter, you know, quarter of a centimeter push and making a little bit more of the world known. Mm. Oh my gosh, how cool is that? Oh, like how all these old pieces of math are these tools to really explore the unknown and to like step into mystery and to find more of like God's creation and and what is yet to be known that's oh that's such a different view of math i so i was good at math as a kid and so i yeah. liked it because we like what we're good at but i got to calculus and it was really hard for me and it's just now that i'm looking back and saying my calculus teacher never once told me what calculus was doing or mm -hmm. what it was about mm -hmm. and when you talk about calculus and when i hear it now it's like this is it's so embodied in real life and not once was there any connection to the real mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. so i just think this this notion of how math is embodied and and what that looks like is such a beautiful it it feels like that is um your sense of calling is to push the limits and to really bring this sense of we are embodied creatures. Math is an embodied um, art. If I can I call math an art, is that okay? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know what? <laughs> Out of all the disciplines, I would say that math is the most um, is the closest related to the art world. Because mm -hmm. and and the reason I'm going to say that is because of the notion of usefulness. I think in almost every discipline I know of, there's a lot of use to things. But in math, the what gives a mathematician a rush is not usefulness, but beauty. Hmm. In fact, if you know, it, it, Elon Musk comes and tells you, you know what, it's Tina, you have to learn math. It is so amazing because with it, we can build spaceships. If, if that's what Elon Musk says, do you know what you're in love with? 
you're not in love with math, you're in love with spaceships. Yeah. And a, a physicist comes and says, you know, math is so amazing because with it you can understand black holes. And a biologist comes to you and says, with math we can understand how DNA works or how replication of the virus works or mutation works. Gosh, you're not in love with math, it's just a hammer. You're really in love with all these biological principles. So, but a mathematician is not in love with the usefulness of math. I mean, thankfully, Physicists are. I don't really care if they are. I have no interest in Elon Musk's life, and I, nor do I have interest in spaceships. But what I love is math. And so the notion of math is, why do I do it? It's the rush of doing math. It's like mm. to understand mathematical truths and to lift up the hood and to see, oh my gosh, wait a minute, how do squares really work? I thought I knew squares as a kid. Dude, I'm an idiot. I know nothing about squares. You're <laughs> telling me that nobody knows that problem? And like all of a sudden, you're, you're having a beer with somebody, you're having coffee with somebody, you're just thinking about idiotic things like squares. And if, when somebody actually asks you, hey, what's the use of that? The answer is, what do you mean? Like, why do you go to an art museum? Mm -hmm. Nobody says, what's the use of an art museum? You go there to be human. You go and check out a concert or you go to a theater performance, not to say, oh, this is gonna be useful for me to balance my checkbook tomorrow. Or now I got my plumbing fixed, right? Mm -hmm. Now that's how the drywall works now that I watch Rothko, right? Like, no, you're an idiot. You watch Rothko because it makes you alive. And that's mm -hmm. exactly the same reason you do math. It has no purpose and amazing Amazingly, the trickle-down theory of math is it in the current world today it does have some purpose and some utility, but man, that just destroys the point of math. And that's why I think math is so closely related to art. Because mm -hmm. it really has no utility. The point of an artist is doing sort of what the point of a mathematician does in that in that rush of seeing the unknown. Mm -hmm. At the same time though, the kind of questions a mathematician deals with is very trivial compared to the question an artist deals with. So I don't want to mm -hmm. equate them too much, but I do want to equate them a little bit. So what, what does it look like, or what has it looked like in your career or in your experiences that you've seen these categories that for the, the average person seem like worlds apart, where you've seen art and math collapsed or integrated in a way that brings out the, um, the true beauty and mystery of math? Um, you know, like one notion, actually going back to the the idea of calculus that you talked about. When I think of calculus, there's kind of a bread and butter what people use it for calculus that is really important for you to know. This is me as a math teacher suffering in my in my heart knowing that you don't know really what calculus is all about. <laughs> but the bigger thing about the way mathematicians think about calculus is it is really the power to hold infinity in your hand. That's the mm -hmm. way I like to tell it. Because if you think about the notion of infinity, who are we as mortals? to even claim to understand it. I mean, if you think of the biggest number, 200 trillion, you know, like a lot of zeros, whatever it is, then, I mean, you're not even close. That's nothing compared to what the infinite is, right? Like, no matter how big you think it is, I mean, it's not 30, it's 3 million. It's not 3 billion, it's 3.5 trillion. Like, those are nothing compared to infinity. And to say that you can handle infinity, you can actually like seize it and own it is, is absolutely offensive. And yet that's exactly what calculus allows you to do. It says, we can look into the depths of nothingness and actually pull out infinity, like as something gets closer and closer to nothing, we can talk, and as it gets further and further away, we can talk about it. So like as an example, what's, you know, if I say like, what's a half a half, half a piece of pecan pie? You know, I'm sorry, you take a pie, right? A pecan pie, okay. take half yeah. of it, okay. and then now add a quarter more of it, right? So now you have like, you know, three quarters, right? Three like quarters, you have a, okay. Right? Now add an eighth of it and add a sixteenth of it. And they keep like adding these like slices mm. of pie, right? A half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth plus 132. You know, the bottom is you just keep multiplying by two, mm. right? Like, you know, half of a half of, and if you do this forever, 
And that, this is the punchline. If you do it forever, you get exactly one pi. Right? And that to me is, first of all, okay, you could kind of believe it because every time you know you have a hack and you do a court, it's not going to get bigger. And it, it kind of feel, fills in a little bit more. But who yeah. says, first of all, you're going to get one and not less or more? And then who says you even have, you can talk about forever? I mean, what right do you have? And so the power of calculus is this, is this great weaponry of mathematics to seize and be able to hold that in your hand. And then, of course, if you think about whole, it's almost like, um, gosh, uh, what is that? the Marvel Universe? You know, now they have like those mm. infinity stones. Like you have this incredible power, like godlike power in your fist, right? In one of these rings and stones. So that's kind of what calculus is. Of course, you could wield it in so many cool different ways if you could hold infinity. And yeah. so one way to wield it is like in eighth grade, you knew what a line was and how slopey it was rise over run, you know? Mm -hmm. And so now if you like bend the line into a curve, you can talk about at any point on the curve, it's slopiness. Literally, you could zoom in to a microscopic infinite point level, like nothingness to it. And you could talk about how slopey it is, which is amazing. Mm. And then for any line you have from eighth grade, you have like, you know, the area under that under that line looks like, you know, it looks uh -huh. like a triangle and a rectangle, you know, one half base times height and all those kind of things, right? That you knew as a kid. Now you can take a curve and you could talk about the area under the curve, mm. which is sort of like you have to shatter it into a whole bunch of little rectangles to fit it in. You have to shatter it forever to get it perfectly. But how do we know forever? Oh my gosh, here's this infinity stone that allows us to do forever. Mm. So in one sense, math is dealing with in a funny way, like going back to your original question of how the disciplines are kind of connected, is almost theological and philosophical questions. Math is a child mm. of philosophy because the remarkable part about math I find is it has, actually has anything practical because you're sort of dreaming. Right? Mm. You're dreaming about these infinite things. You're dreaming about, and that's just, that's just one little slice of one little area of mathematics, which is kind of you know, led to the issue of calculus. But then there's like other issues of primality and other issues of geometry, which I love, that you could dream about, which is very close to like looking into God's mind in one sense, mm. right? So it's a theological mm. notion, philosophical notion. And to me, it's, it's gorgeous because the world is a world that we've created. So here's a, here's a simple, simple thing to push you on. You know, if you draw a triangle, Tina, and if you add the angles of the three corners of the triangle, you're going to get 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. And every triangle you ever draw, you're going to get 100. Now, check it out, right? So there have only been a finite number of humans in the world today, right? From the Big Bang to whatever, you know, whatever way you want to count it. And imagine every human who's ever lived has spent, you know, every moment of their waking lives drawing triangles and measuring the angles. Well, you have finite number of humans who've lived finite number of lives, who could only draw a finite number of triangles. So at the end of it, we've only have the test case in front of us, you know, all the examples ever done is yeah. finite, right? Like, and you know, infinite is huge compared to finite. I don't care if it's like 200 billion, billion, billion but it's still finite. And somebody goes, hey, every one of these triangles adds up to 180. That still doesn't convince me at all that every triangle has to add up to 180. I mean, that's a pretty good thing, right? But maybe y'all suck. Like maybe <laughs> we don't know anything of like physicists would be like sweet physical data, right? They're happy with some theoretical predictions and biologists, you know, like we have no interest in this, you know, thank you for, we want absolute truth. And hmm. mathematically, you can prove that the sum of the angles of every triangle, not the finite ones that you've ever seen, but anything ever imaginable is 180. That is an absolute bedrock of a truth, knowing that there's no data that'll ever be created to 
to, to explain it because you only have finite pieces moving in your world. Mm-hmm. And so mathematics to me is this like remarkable thing in this one world. So it has this kind of philosophical bent to it. Um, but then the moment we get into the sciences, you see that we kind of leave this world and we actually enter the real world, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we leave this mathematical world of perfection and we enter into the real world of measurable. We talk about biology and chemistry and physics as like the measurable part of our real world. And then you can kind of move down the list and it turns out you, you become less and less measurable. Namely, what I mean by that is the reason mathematics is so measurable is because we make up our own world. Mm. And as you enter the real world, you know, physics deals with measurable things. And and then if you talk about history or, or literature, well, it's less and less measurable because... Gosh, you know, historical facts are harder to grasp than yeah. a biological specimen in front of you. And then, you know, you go into issues of literature, like, you know, what was Chaucer's original manuscript? You know, is it one of the copies we have, or is it some, you know, maybe it was a, you know, some scribal error? What was Chaucer really trying to say? Even the sonnets of Shakespeare is kind of a puzzling mm-hmm. thing because when you think about his plays, we clearly know that's not Shakespeare saying those words, that's Shakespeare making Hamlet say those words. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the sonnets, people really don't know if Shakespeare really said the sonnets, or if he is actually having these personas say the sonnets, and we really have no clue who Shakespeare really is. Mm. So you kind of think sonnets should be like the closest to who he is. But even then, like, gosh, the questions become more difficult because things become less measurable. And by the time you come to the art world, although I did say math and art are very related in one perspective, they're literally on the opposite ends of the spectrum in this other one. Mm. Because art deals with things that aren't measurable at all. Like you, you can't quantify, almost by definition, if you can put words to it, it will be called literature, but you can't. <laughs> and so yeah. that's why like the artist is dealing with things that can't even be, you know, if you, you, know, you look at especially some abstract works, it's you, you're moved. Like Mm. Rothko, and I'm going back to like Rothko again, you're just so moved. But then, gosh, words is not the point of what he's trying to say. If you can't say the word depressed or, you know, blown away or difficult or or stressful, it's just not enough. There's something deeper. So Mm. to me, what's going on is, yes, there's a spectrum of measurability, but behind it is a spectrum of complexity. So math actually deals with highly measurable things. But listen, my friend, you know what we've been talking about so far? Triangles. (laughs) Triangles. <laughs> like, it's just really dumb. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know how many people are still listening to this, to this podcast anymore. But like, there's nothing complicated really going because that's all I got in my pocket. I have amazing truths about infinite. And I say like, oh, infinite, hold it in your hand. Oh, you know, one of those amazing stones of power. But dude, I've only been playing the card of a triangle or maybe squares or maybe some 3D. You know, like, we, it's kind of pathetic because the complexity of what we deal with is so low key. And Biological, chemical, and physical complexity deals with more harder things like what is a black hole? You know, what is it? How do their molecules work? And then you go into historical complexity. You know, what happened 300 years ago? Oh my God. Yeah. We could even talk about what happened in the past election, right? Like there are these issues of yeah. what is truth when you kind of pull time out of it that we can't go backwards. And then you get into the issues of art. Yeah. Man. And so it's, it's this and, wild ride. And I can't help but think, like you said, when we try to simplify those things, like history, for example, when we try to simplify history, we're telling one narrative at the expense of others because there is that complexity. And when we take this notion of like straightforward, simplistic, almost mathematical to the more complex issues of the world, we, um, yeah, we're, we're missing, we're doing, we're kind of doing violence to the, um, yes. to the practice itself. Yes. Okay. I love, so you worked on a project that really embodied this, the embodiment of math and art and mystery and kind of humanity all at once that 
was that went up at Burning Man. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Okay, tell us about that. I think a little, just to pull a little bit of background, it kind of goes back to my mom, which is that although she was a botanist and a biologist, I have these old notebooks of hers from from like from her master's program. Hmm. And it's basically like hundreds of pages of meticulous drawings. She wow. loves, she's an amazing artist. She would never say that herself. Um, so part of my DNA is somebody who loves to draw. Hmm. And so part of my DNA is kind of my math, my dad's DNA of kind of thinking mathematically. And so again, like I really was having been pulled towards math as a discipline other than I love to make and I love to talk about it. And so when it came to when it came to thinking about art this way, I wanted to work with artists over the years just because it, it turned out that they were dealing with physical realities and how to draw, which mm. is what I was dealing with in my own math world. Like I wanted to draw mathematics that was really hard to draw, maybe four dimensional things. Like how do you see things unraveling in different ways? Oh my gosh, artists deal with these kind of things. So why am I hanging out with mathematicians <laughs> really are bad at artists, you know, as artists. In fact, I've been told that like I'm an amazing artist as a mathematician, but there's always this word like as in you know, like for a mathematician <laughs> qualifier for a as qualifier. A like, dude, you dress really nicely for a mathematician. Like you're wearing a shirt. Most people I know just walk around naked or like, you know, have an underwear upside. So it's just the math world is just the bar is so low in so many things that it's OK to look decent in many things, including art, including fashion or all these things, because you just need to like move up a little bit because we're just in those clouds, right? We're in our math world. But having said that, I've been wanting to work with artists. And over the years, when I first came to San Diego, I realized I wanted to work with artists, not just in a visual 2D drawing perspective, but in 3D building perspectives. Yeah. Um, but the thing that drives me is always unsolved questions. I always want to be at the edge of the unknown. That's what should drive everybody and everything, right? One of my favorite mm -hmm. movies of all time is Ratatouille. And in Ratatouille, you know, Brad Bird, one of my favorite directors, this rat is trying to explain to his brother rat how food works. And he's trying mm -hmm. to explain how, you know, eating food works. And it turns out that he's saying, you know, can you imagine this piece of cheese with this strawberry? Now imagine every combination of every food. And he kind of like zones out. But what he's really talking about is Jerusalem. He's talking mm -hmm. about this new kingdom to come. We will spend eternity trying every combination of everything because this finite time isn't enough. And so it's that rush of the unknown. So when I want to work with artists, what I want to do is create a work of art that needs to be a reflection of unsolved art, a new art that never was exist that never existed before, and new mathematics didn't that didn't exist before. So most of the time one has been perverted for the sake of the other. Usually mm -hmm. an artist does amazing things and they say, and this is about fractals. And that's cool, <laughs> except fractals are like fifty years old and we're done, right? Like thank you, we got it. And then on the other hand, mathematicians usually ask artists or they themselves draw or like, you know, make something which is mathematically cool but artistically awful. Or either the, the artist is, is asked to be a, a rep, basically um, a hired hand to, to draw something for the scientist, right? Yeah. Which is, I find deeply offensive. And so how do we, and the whole world of like, I don't know if you know about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. There's a new thing called STEAM with, it, with an A in it, which I find um, as like satanic, but we'll talk about that some other time. Um, but I mean, this is the most deeply of way of offending those in the arts by those with power, namely the scientists. And it's mm -hmm. like a way of crushing them and saying you're actually being their friend. It's, it's awful in many ways. Um, but having said that, like I want to work with these these pieces together where both are valued. And so we built this two-ton sculpture, which is basically a dodecahedron, but it opens and closes in this funny way. And it echoes two things. It's called unfolding humanity because mm. the outside is layered with 
like about 20,000 LEDs that look like the Matrix, you know, the Matrix movie, which asks yeah. you, like, what is technology doing to you? You know, like, are you really a robot, especially in the middle of the desert and Burning Man? And then inside, it's lined with these, you know, 12 foot tall mirrors. It's like a mirrored room that looks like a dodecahedron. So all you see is, you know, if you, if you ever put on a pair of jeans and gap, you know how those those mirrors are angled. <laughs> yeah. There's like infinite copies of yourself, right? Something yeah. like that. So it's like that, except it's a dodecahedral room. So there's these copies of you that go everywhere in these different pieces. Wow. So it looks infinite, but it's finite because clearly it's only the volume in that little box, right? But it looks like it's going on forever. And so we ask this question because the way you unfold the dodecahedron points to the oldest geometric problem that I know of that came from Albrecht Durer which is given a box and you are allowed to cut along the edges of a box, can you unfold it flat without the flaps hmm. overlapping? If the box is a cube, Tina, you could imagine like cutting along some of the edges. So it kind of opens like a cross, you know, like a bunch of squares that look like a cross uh -huh. where the yeah. four flaps go up and then the longer part of the cross go up to the top and cover the cube. So you could do it for a cube, but can you do it for any box ever made with any flat sides, you know, any geometric funny shape? And Durer was struggling with these kind of things as somebody who cared about 3D drawing, but 2D representation of it. Unsolved problem. Nobody knows whether you can do this for any box imaginable. Every box yeah. we try works. But yeah. this goes back to the old triangle thing, right? Like every triangle you try works. That doesn't mean it's true. Maybe there's a triangle out there that it doesn't work for. And we have now mathematical weaponry that proves it's true for every triangle, right? That's old school result, the sum of the angles of a triangle. But we don't have that machinery for unfolding boxes. And that's the state of the art. So we wanted to talk about an unsolved question that you physically can be embodied in, right? Like you walk mm -hmm. in there and the way this thing unfolds points to this bigger question. And the second question is, what is the shape of our universe? So if you think about the shape of the Earth, the Earth is a sphere, right? We kind of get that. And, but people used to maybe think that it would just go on forever, right? Like we think it's like, oh, it's just a plane that goes on forever. And even yeah. in scripture, you read things like, you know, God sends his angels to the four corners of the Earth. And what, you know, you could almost imagine like a square, you know, or like a rectangle, like literally, it just, it's meant to symbolize the fact that God's in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. And so it just means he's, you know, he fully reigns and rules. But, but yet, like, there's a visualization of maybe the Earth is like that. Maybe it's not forever, but it's finite, and then, like, it has these boundary walls. But it turned out that the Earth, the shape it happened to be, was a sphere. It's still mm. finite, but it had no boundary. It had no edge because you can keep mm. going around and around. Or there's nothing called the corner of an Earth. And so the question that people are asking is, what's the shape of our universe? Mm. So in one sense, you can say, well, this goes on forever. Well, that's like the old school way of saying the earth goes on forever, right? Like it, it's not true because the universe is finite. There's a finite amount of, of, of atoms because of the Big Bang. So, okay, then what shape did it take? Is it something with a corner? Like maybe it's a cube and you can get to the corner of the universe. And people don't think that's true. It's mm -hmm. probably something like a sphere kind of a thing. Like it just keeps going. And eventually, if you go far enough, you come back to where you start. Like if you go to the North mm -hmm. Pole and keep going, you come back to the equator, the South Pole, and back to the North Pole. Like that's probably what our universe is like. But what particular shape other than a sphere could it be? And one possible shape is this kind of dodecahedron. Wow. And so it's, uh, it's called a Poincaré dodecahedral sphere. So this artwork kind of points to some unsolved questions. Of course, we can't solve it. That's not what we're claiming to do. And just like the artistic work is pointing to something as an artist you're struggling with, it's, mm. we actually wanted to point to mathematical questions about shape that mathematicians are struggling with just it's so I would just love to see like to have seen people engage that and to how that draws them into this wonder this mystery this sense of you know being um who am I in light of these bigger questions you know this 
this like smallness, but the smallness that is in Psalm eight of, you know, the, the psalmist is looking up to the sky and he's like, what am I that you are mindful of me? You know what, mm-hmm. like this universe is incredible, but somehow like you care for me so intimately. I just mm-hmm. love and that is like when you talk about the mystery and the boundaries of math yeah. um, and what that what that does for us as humans. That's oh, can you imagine if kids if this is the type of math that they fell in love with and <laughs> that they had the chance to know yeah. growing up? Um, yeah, I mean, going yeah. back to that thing about Burning Man, it's we actually kept track of that. Your question, we actually kept track of it, which is mm. what were the experiences that people had? And it was yeah. it was really lovely. It was remarkable. And in fact, it even mm. was even more stark because I if you realize Burning Man, it's in the middle of the desert and most of the sculptures there, um, you know, there's like one or two things I guess you burn out of wood or something, but most of it there are like very expensive artworks that you're taking, mm. you know, this is like serious artists doing massive sculptures. So they're huge things. And you're, they're designed to be seen like far away because you're wow. in the desert, right? And you're supposed to like, you, you bike around, and you just mm. take a bicycle around everywhere. And, uh, and our thing, it's, you know, 12 feet tall. <laughs> which is amazing inside a yeah. building. But in the desert, it's nothing. It's <laughs> like, you're like, mm. wait, where's your thing? Oh, that? You know, like it's a speck. And so we thought we're like being just like punks, like, dude, we got this huge 12 feet tall. <laughs> and it's like, that's, so it just, it turned out that actually it was a redeeming quality because of what you said, Tina. Because huh. in the middle of the desert, it is literally a small space when the whole thing closes up that it felt kind of secure, like somebody wrapping you up, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it felt infinite and massive, but it's like, oh my gosh, like this, these mirrors are kind of reflecting on myself. There's a sense of comfort. It feels like, yes, like infinity is holding me, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of felt this incredible sense that, that what people got, in fact, one guy would stay in there for half an hour. And then like, you know, he'd kind of, you could open up any of the panels you want. We have these kind of chain hoists and each of the flaps open. And then wow. different people would kind of cycle through. And he became our kind of guide, he just didn't want to leave. So as new people came in, he's like, oh, let me open it for you guys. Okay, I'm just gonna stay here. Right? Like it's, and so he just found it so, like such a lovely place to be in, right? So even the yeah. contrast of the desert, you know, to that space is really cool. Oh my gosh, that's so, so neat. Okay, I have a fun, gosh, we could talk, we could talk about this stuff we'll t- We could so talk long. another time, you know? We yeah, could like we'll have, do- a, have a part two continuing. We'll do a, a part two for sure. Yeah. Cause this is like, there's so many new things. I'm sure people are listening and they're like, this is blowing my mind. Um, or they turned it off by now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they it's turned you it off and me and my mom. The three of us are going to be listening to this again. <laughs> We're going to have a the great Pythagorean time. Pythagorean theorem. Pythagorean theorem, right there. You lost whatever you had. It's one or the other. It's your show, girl, um, right? If it was me, that would have been dangerous, but you said it. I did it. I did it. Okay, but I have a, a fun last question for you. This is yeah. a, a a theoretical question yeah, so totally. put on your you know imagination hat so you have a math lab yes. that you actually had built um when you became when you came to university of san diego i yes. got to see it and it was really cool um because i guess that's not a thing right math yeah. like other other um arts and sciences have labs but yeah typically math mathematicians don't so you have this great math lab where math can be sort of done and experimented in these 3d 4d Mm, I still don't yeah. know what 40 is, but yeah. Ooh, <laughs> in, mm, in these, <laughs> that's another conversation. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Delicious. Okay. So my question is, if something happened um, in the world where you had to spend the rest of your life 
exploring a mathematical mystery in your math lab. Okay. What would that mystery be? So you've written a book on, it's, oh, yeah. it's five, right? There's five of Merlin's um, oh, mysteries. Oh, I think 16. 16. Oh, 16. Well, they're, like infin <laughs> they're infinitely many. We just picked okay, okay. the ones that are kind of cool, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. So whether it's one of those or a different oh, um, yeah, mathematic no mystery. Don't want no, any of those okay, yeah. different one. Great. Yeah. So pick one of those mysteries. You have to spend the rest of your career yeah. in that math lab exploring that mystery. What mm. would it be? And and why? And what would you hope it would um Oh, that's a good offer question. The world? So what's gonna happen? So I have mathematical ADD. I fall in love with something and then I can't like, oh my gosh, that was really cool great and like within a year year and a half i switched to another topic yeah so i will tell you like what the rush is for me for now but i've never like there's some mathematicians who choose one idea and they become really good at it right mm -hmm. they are the ones known for black holes right they're the ones you know like not even just black holes that's too big of a topic like known for like the way this photon might or might not exist you know and this kind of a thing yeah. and so i'm not known for anything like i guess there's some pieces the way i think like you know algebraically or combinatorially or topologically like those kind of mathematical framings but you know I've, I've done things that people have like referenced and stuff like that it's great but many things uh, by the way very well published uh, he's, thank you he's really downplaying the yeah. amount of no yeah but, but this that i mean the, if you go back to this book about this merlin's mysteries that you mentioned the to me that book is basically written for anybody in the world it's not written for mm -hmm. me it's basically it, kind of what you said earlier which is gosh i wish as kids we could see that this is kind of what math is that's what it's written for which is it's written for a kid or a grandparent or anyone to get a taste of what mathematicians are in love with. And so mm -hmm. there are these amazing mysteries that nobody knows how to solve. And this is just a glimpse of those great mysteries. And to me, none of those mysteries are exciting to me because there literally are infinitely many mysteries. Because every time, as you know, Tina, like every time you figure out something, it opens the door to 10 other questions. Mm -hmm. So anytime you solve something, it's not the fact that, oh, now the world's getting smaller in my eyes. It's just the opposite, right? Like now the world's getting bigger in my eyes. Oh my yeah. gosh, I didn't know you could put those guys together. If I can do that, then I can do all of these things. And so as mathematicians, we've solved lots of things, which means that tons of things are clueless to us. So like 2% of the world is known and 98% is unknown. Like it's like we're barely scratching the surface of all these kind of things. So the book is written to give you a glimpse of some of those rather than exactly talking about what you opened the lecture with, which is like the Pythagorean theorem. Like, dear yeah. Lord, that's not what exciting, but here's some other stuff. What I want to do is to actually figure out, to, to finally answer your question, is to figure out how squares snap together. So hmm. it's a really simple thing. It's, it has a little meta complex. So like if I take three squares and imagine you can only glue them along their edges. So if you take three squares, just take three of them and they're three ways you can snap them together if you think about it with me just as a as an experiment in your thought you could just make like a like a line like snap a and then snap the square b next to a and then square c next to b like you know three squares in a line mm -hmm. you can snap a b and c where they form the letter l right like a is mm -hmm. next to b and then c is kind of on top of b and then the third way which is kind of a weird way which is actually all three snap together along one edge like a fin you know a b and c mm -hmm. are all along one edge that's it. Those are the only three ways that I can snap those three squares together. There's a cool result from the 90s from this Russian mathematician that says, now this is the, this is the kind of meta part. It's a little, this is the more advanced thinking is every time you snap those squares together in a way, what it gives you is a blueprint to build another crazy shape. So mm. those three ways we snap together, they're basically blueprints to build three different houses. 
they're not the houses themselves. They physically are the blueprint to build houses. So the ones that make like a the, like a long, you know, like three in a row, yeah. the house you build is a square. The ones that make the letter L, the house you build is a pentagon. And the ones that are all along a fin, the house you build is a hexagon. Now notice hmm. those three things are all two-dimensional objects. They're all like polygons, right? But if I gave you four squares to snap together, you know, like all in the letter, you know, like a long way, then there are a lot more combinations than just those three. If I give you four squares to snap together, they are also blueprints for 3D houses. And if I give you five squares to snap together, they give you lots of different combinations, and each one is a different blueprint for D houses. And if you snap together literally 10 squares right in front of you, you could just literally take 10 little squares and glue them in different ways. The, all the different ways you can glue will each be a different blueprint for nine-dimensional houses. And he told us how to do this, except he told us like very poorly. Like, I mean, he, he's like, do this, and then here's the way to go from the blueprint to the house. So he kind of told us how to build this thing, build yeah. these houses. What I want is a shortcut. Like, I just mm -hmm. want to be like, oh my gosh, if you, if like, Tina, you can just snap them together that way. Maybe as you're snapping it, you can kind of see the house being built. And maybe if you crack them in half, like the house beautifully breaks into two pieces the right way. And mm -hmm. isn't it true that for you to have five squares in a row, that means you need to have three squares in a row first to have the two other squares in a row next to it? Well, didn't I tell you three squares in a row is a square? So like maybe somehow like lower dimensional houses show up as shadows and upper dimensional houses. And that should naturally be there because the blueprints are shadows of each other and like, like I just you know like that's the puzzle yeah right there that I feel like would be a rush to figure out but you mm. know in a year it'll be like uh, now that I got it <laughs> let's do this other stuff you know so well, now that we are all thoroughly intrigued and maybe slightly confused and about to go do research on what nine-dimensional means yes um, I think this is a great place to leave us all in the beautiful space of mystery and intrigue and awe that you um, really have pressed into in your life and work so thank you so much for this this conversation was so fun and I'm excited for for part two yeah the joy is all mine Tina thank you so much Thank you so much for joining today's conversation. If you have any ideas, questions, reflections, feel free to leave us a comment on iTunes or reach out by email at info at faithworkbreast.com. 